and welcome to Market Savvy Conversations. My name is Megan Walker, your host, and today our very special guest is Kay Frankham, who is a clinical psychologist, and we're going to be talking about managing your waiting list and the bigger picture issues that might be causing some waiting list challenges. So Kay, Kay is a clinical psychologist, as I've mentioned, and this will focus on waiting lists particularly relevant for uh, practices who've got patients with mental health risks. So hi, Kay, how are you? I'm very well, Megan, and great to be with you today to talk about um, this uh, very gnarly issue of wait lists um, and to talk a bit more about the context of that. Thank you so much, Kay. And for those people listening who haven't met you yet, can you just give us a couple of minutes background so they'll hear what good hands they're in very soon? Tell us your, your studies, where you've practised, about the business that you ran and, and what you do now. Yeah, so um, I, I started off work in regional Victoria in a small town of about 10,000 people and then um, I went into practice then, um, it, having practised in a private practice in regional Victoria and I actually started practising before there was Medicare, God help me, and um, then came to Melbourne, 20 years in suburban Melbourne running a practice uh, that ended up being 16 psychologists and I sold that um, back in 2018. Um and so since then, I've been coaching and supervising other psychologists in their practice, both solo practitioners and, you know, group practice directors. Um, and in addition to that, I've been on the Psychology Board of Australia. I was the president of the Psychologist Board of Victoria, which was its predecessor. And I've done a lot in the sort of area of practice standards and that sort of thing and wrote a book called Fit for Practice um, some four or five years ago now. And um, you'll be glad to know there's another one in the works. Watch this space. Watch this space. <laughs> mm -hmm. So as I mentioned, in good hands. Thanks, Kay. So we're going to start off by talking about a practice's caseload. So kick us off. Who's in the caseload? Go for it. So um, one of the interesting questions I find when you're talking to psychologists is you say to them, how many people are, are active in your caseload? And they go, I don't know. Um, and this is a bit of a concern because you can't really manage a wait list unless you know how many active cases you're treating and how many sessions per week you can offer to your existing caseload. So first of all, let's help the people that are already working with us and make sure that we're maximising what we're doing in terms of being able to offer them appointments when they need them and to move them through a treatment plan. Because essentially with the kind of pressure that we have at the moment, we've got 20 to 30% up, uptick of referrals from GPs into most practices, particularly in um, our three big states, Queensland, um, New South Wales and Victoria, despite lockdowns and COVID and all, the whole hoo-ha, if anything, that's really what spiked this, um, that we really need to be clear with, our, with ourselves and with our clients as to, um, you know, how many sessions we may may require to, to give them for that treatment plan once we've got into it, once we've assessed them, once we've got a fair idea of what we're going to work on and we've set some goals, is to be able to talk with them about, about that. And, of course, now we have 20 sessions uh, that is allowed. Um, that can stretch out and really make for a wait list problem because most of us have been used to working in 10 session blocks. So I think it's important to know what, um, is your current caseload? If you um, are full-time, if you're working a four- to five-day week, you shouldn't have more than 35 to 40 clients on your active caseload. If you're more like two or three days a week, it's obviously going to be around half that. So it's thinking about, okay, what is my optimal caseload? 
how many clients can I see? Some people can see seven a day. Some people can see four. The average is probably five to six. And, of course, then you look at how many uh, weeks there are in the year and you take away, you know, the amount of um, leave you might like to take. And please be taking leave even if you can't go anywhere. Just take some time out at the moment in this pandemic, which is dragging on and will drag on for some time to come. So I think it's just thinking about this uh, current caseload and optimal caseload and then looking into the caseload. Yeah. You know, who, who are people that you are seeing because they just keep showing up? Now, you know, psych some psychologists believe that if a client keeps showing up, then who are we to say um, go, go away or discharge them? It, to me, it's a conversation you need to have. Some people do need long-term care, but some people don't. And we often don't talk about people talk with our clients at the early stages about um, how do we know when we are done when you've got whatever you need from here because we, there are risks for people staying in therapy for longer than they need. They can deteriorate um, in our care because, of course, psychologists can always find a problem to work on, can't they? Um, mental health clinicians, we're, we're, we're very guilty of that. But also there's dependency on the counselling and dependency on the clinician. And we want to try and minimise that if we can. So all of these things are really important to think about because almost all of the literature we have on outcome um, out of therapy says that most of the, um, I guess, outcomes uh, appear to occur um, or the most change, should I say, appears to occur in the first seven sessions of any therapy of any kind. Yeah. So we want to maximise that. And then once we get past that, I guess the question is, what exactly are you continue? Do you continue to work in episodes of care with this person? That's fine. Particular things you've worked decided to work on over time. But supportive counselling in this kind of environment is, it's, it's um, I guess it's a question mark for us. And I think sometimes we have people we're seeing in this maintenance kind of fashion where perhaps a third party is paying for their services, like your work covers and so forth, or the person says, you're the only one who understands me, I wanted to keep coming, mm. that we then sort of fall into seeing that person. And it's kind of in some ways, this is a bit of a dirty little secret, Megan, and you're not to tell anybody. But I think for mental health clinicians, it can be a cruisy session. And when we're under stress ourselves, feeling a bit burnt out, don't have access to the usual supports we'd be hoping to have so we can support our clients, yeah. then some of these supportive counselling sessions can be a bit of a break from, I guess, the complexities of other people that we're uh, actively treating. Yeah, makes sense, doesn't it? And what about returning clients? What's your suggestion there? So I think you have to have a, a policy in your mind about, you know, if somebody is being discharged for six months or more from your client load and then returns to treatment, would you consider treating them as, uh, as if they were a new client and saying to them, you have to go back on the wait list? Mm. Um, some people might say, some clinicians might say, well, you know, some people I've said to them, come back when you're ready. We, we want to do some more depth work together and they might show up and you might say, well, I, I'd say, okay, treat them differently. Treat them as a segment of your clinical load. But I think uh, if you just give people that sort of opportunity to sort of flow in and out without you actually controlling what's going on and having a policy that you can enunciate to them and explain to them why, then the wait list will run your practice, not you run the wait list. Mm, interesting. 
Mm. And I know we're going to talk about different ideas for, you know, addressing the, the long wait list, but is one of them, is one option to take a more niche focus with your practice? Um, do you mean niche presentation? Yeah. What's your thoughts yeah. there? Being more yes. specialised. Oh, no, we're not allowed to use that word, but having a more focused. Sure. Uh, and I think when you're working in areas like an eating disorders or uh, personality difficulties or cr- chronic pain or whatever it may be, ASD uh, presentations and associated mental health problems, you definitely can have a niche market and you may, in that re- respect, be able to sort of be more clear about how long you're going to work with the person on whatever it is. The difficulty where something like the NDIS, for example, comes into play is once somebody starts with you under the NDIS, it can be a kind of an endless piece of string as to how long you work with that person because there's an assumption that they may need long-term care. And that could be a true assumption um, in 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 an objectively um, right assumption. But I guess the question for you as a, as a clinician is how does that fit with what your passion is and whether or not you need to see some new clients every so often in order to keep yourself renewed and, and feel vigorous in the work you do. For some people, people are happy to see somebody long-term and that's that kind of long-term psychotherapy work is what they do or long-term support of somebody with a disability and working in a multidisciplinary team or longer-term work with eating disorders. I'm fine with that, but just know what it means for you as a clinician because it will mean you are shutting the door potentially. Well, you could be shutting the door to, to an active wait list because you just say, look, my, my books are closed and that's that. Hmm. But you also have to ask yourself, do I want to make space for new clients? Is that my uh, responsibility or my response to the pandemic? Nobody's responsible to the pandemic, but we're, you know, do we want to be responsive to the environment we're working in with this uptick of referrals? Or do we just sort of keep going on our little kind of way and, and not deviate from that and, and hope that, that, that the nasty world that we're currently living goes away sometime soon? it may not be an effective way to mm. respond to that. So would you suggest having setting aside new client appointment spots? Again, it's up to you, you know, uh, but yes, I would. I would say that having the opportunity to take on new clients, um, it allows referrers to recognise that you are capable of doing that. I think saying to referrers, um, I've got a wait list. You need to really be clear about what that means. Mm. Um, to my way of thinking, it's about thinking about um, what sort of people you don't want to have on that wait list uh, in terms of presentations and, and risks. Yeah. But I think if you have new client opportunities, then you can also say to a, a GP that you like to work with, I have got, you know, two new, two new uh, client spots per month. Mm-hmm. And um, they are available, sort of first come, first serve. If you have somebody who would fit that criteria, who's a, who would be a new client, and perhaps somebody who only needs a, a small amount of sessions because most of their difficulties are in response to the pandemic. Because remember, the uptick, we think, this is the analysis we've seen from the uh, Australian Institute of uh, Health and Welfare sort of uh, statistics out of Medicare, we think that a lot of the uptake, uptick is to do with people who have never consulted a mental health clinician before. Yeah. 
Right. So we think that some of this uptick is, is coming out of the pandemic. So you might say to your, um, you know, well-loved GP referrers and so forth, hey, guys, I've got, you know, a couple of spots for people with pandemic responses right. and mental health-related responses who might, you know, just need somebody to intervene now, give mm. them some coping skills, work with them on that, and then out the door in, you know, maybe six to ten sessions. Mm. Um, my marketing brain, looking at. my mm. marketing brain likes that for the keep in touch factor. That yeah. <laughs> we're still here, we're yeah. still in practice. We haven't, you know, gone to ground, and we're not communicating with everyone because we're so overwhelmed. Correct. Keep those lines of communication open. Yes, and I think the other thing about it is to recognise that GPs want to hear that we're, you know, responding in a nimble and agile way. So yeah. we might say we've got a set of resources that we send out to people who do go on the waiting list. Mm. If you have somebody who you want to refer, then we will send an expression of interest whether they want to activate that referral. Yeah. So we can look at ways in which we kind of uh, have uh, I guess, stagings in our waitlist process, which I can get into uh, as we talk some more. But I think part of it is about saying, are you aware of these apps? We also are aware that, you know, so-and-so practice is running some groups to support people or there's the Head to Health Hubs, mm. which uh, Head to Health Hubs, Hubs, uh, hubs.org.au. Um, go have a look. There's a number of them, certainly in Victoria. They're being trialled also in New South Wales these days, I believe. These are... Uh, basically triaging services with mental health clinicians available on phones, on video, or in some cases in person, who will support people until they can get an ongoing therapist. So, um, you know, so I think it's really about um, being aware of our um, fellow health professionals who, you know, GPs can't say to people, go away, I don't want to see you. Yeah. They don't do that. And I guess us we are of a different nature, I understand that, but we also have to realise we're a team. Mm. And this is team health, you know, team mental health, um, and we really need to be responsive to our GPs and talking to them about, you know, what are the, what can they see that we could do better or that then we could respond to this overwhelming needs given, you know, our limitations, um, rather than just putting up the hand and go, mm. Shut. Mm-hmm. And, Kay, getting into waiting lists a little bit more, you know, talk about what limits should be put on wait lists, how long should they be, false figures, restricted per clinician, et cetera. Get into that detail a bit more. Well, one of the things that really concerns me is people, you know, I certainly speak to practitioners who are in group practices and where, you know, somebody's putting um, a client on a wait list for, sorry, is putting somebody into their diary to have their first session in November. And there might be a number of those people. And I guess that, to me, that's sort of a pseudo wait list. And the difficulty is in managing your diary is you might get to November and that person's gone off somewhere else. Mm. They don't want that appointment. You know, it, to me, it's like it's, it, it's a bit of a pseudo wait list, really. And it isn't really appropriate. I think if we can't offer a session to somebody within six weeks, we have to ask ourselves whether we're ever going to be able to offer them a session. That, you know, that's one parameter, if, you know, and you well, people are welcome to expand that and, and have a different time frame. But I think having a time frame that you at least can, again, have as a policy and enunciate to a, 
potential clients. You can say, I'll take an expression of interest that you have in joining our waitlist and coming to see one of our practitioners. But until I have uh, a GP referral, your care plan, I know your availability, your demographics, your next of kin, your referral reasons, I I can't really actually allocate you. I can't, Mm. can't allocate you either as a general waitlist person or to a particular clinician given uh, your presentation. Um, so I think it is about do you run a waitlist for your whole practice, do you waitlist each individual clinician, um, do you start off with what I'm calling this expression of interest sort of level before you then, once you've got all their paperwork, they then actually join the waitlist. Mm-hmm. And then when they do join the waitlist, you know, what are you going to do about monitoring their risk? Absolutely. And how do we know that they're not and who asks? So mm. asking somebody, could you tell me if you're suicidal or not, my dear? Mm. Um, you know, it's probably not a, a role we want to give to a reception person, um, you know, necessarily. It could yeah. be an okay thing for an administrator to do, but they will need training and support because what if the person says, yes, actually, you know, I've got the means to do it right here next to me and um, you're, mm. if you don't give me an appointment today, I'm going to take my life. Mm. You know, th- that can happen. Um, so um, I think... sidebar, sorry, Kate, can we just mm. address that just very... I know that's a massive thing, but what does someone do in that situation just so we don't leave that one hanging? Well, I think that the, the fact of the matter is an administrator, then hopefully before they've actually had that conversation, they have next of kin and some of that demographic material. Mm-hmm. But it may happen that the person just rings up on spec, yeah. right? And so to my way of thinking, it's keeping them on the phone and having a chat while you're um, sending an email to your practice director or another psychologist who might be in the practice or clinician who's in the practice and asking for their support Mm -hmm. because you may or may not be able to do anything. Yeah, okay. Um, If you don't have enough information to then send a a police officer around for a welfare check, which is what we would do here in Victoria. Other states, it's a similar process called something else, but Mm -hmm. essentially a welfare check. Um, you have to have an address, you have to have a name, yeah. uh, you have to have a phone number. So I guess as soon as somebody's ringing and they're saying that, you're immediately writing down hopefully the phone number that's come up um, on your PABX or whatever that tells you what, you know, their number, but you don't necessarily know a next of kin or any of those things to, because the activation process would be to first of all um, see if you can get them to talk to you and find out who's around and who knows of their circumstances and what supports they have mm-hmm. and to get an extra kin who you could ask to intervene mm-hmm. uh, before you involve police. Mm-hmm. Thank you for answering that. I thought I'd better just go down that, that yeah. path a little bit more. Such a critical one. Yeah. yeah okay. And so, so we might have people on, you know, four, four different wait lists in their 10, 15K radius or further, depending on where they're based. That's right. Waiting for who's available next. That's right. And most people, most practices are saying to people, don't um, cease just because we're putting you on our wait list, looking for other options. There are other practices, you know, you may want to be, as you say, on multiple wait lists, which is why you've got to manage it and why you need to make it a a fairly specific period of time um, that you try and uh, offer an appointment to this person. Um, sometimes people say, oh, I don't care. I'll just wait however long it takes. Well, that maybe they will, but it's not necessarily in their best interest. And I think sometimes we've got to think about 
the fact that the people who are approaching us for services are not necessarily the greatest judges of what's in their best interest. That's part of the reason that they are coming to us is because they don't know how to help themselves at this point, mm. either because that's a new experience for them due to the pandemic or they've had ongoing mental health conditions and issues over time that have led to that. Yeah, really good point. Absolutely. And then so people going on our wait lists, um, some other things that you've talked to me about is when they have complex considerations, mm. what do we do there? So I think, you know, we, we need to be asking um, if we are going to go this triage um, routine with our wait lists, um, we need to be thinking about family violence. Mm. Um, now, asking directly somebody, do you, is there family violence in your household? Um, may or may not get you anywhere, but asking whether they have any apprehended violence orders that are involved in their situation and or family law matters right. that are afoot could help you to kind of um, suss that out and potentially might lead to that person having a conversation with your practice director or somebody more senior, not with the administrator. Yeah. I think sexual abuse, current sexual abuse, so that could require mandatory reporting again this is um, a different level of referral that I think you need to think very carefully about putting somebody with that kind of story on a wait list mm. um, and where there's trauma complexity now you might say well, what exactly trauma is complex in, its, in the first place what do you mean I guess I'd say where there are other considerations as well so um, again is the trauma historical or current um, what is the age of the person who is enduring this um, trauma? What, what uh, other supports are around them? Uh, do they have other um, uh, clinicians, health services involved? Um, again, family law, apprehended violence orders, child safety, Department of Human Services. This is if you're dealing with adolescents and young people, obviously. Yeah. Headspace. Um, you know, you might need to be asking questions about who else is in the picture before you weigh into being in the picture yourself. Gee, our medical and clinical receptionists, the good ones, are just worth their weight they in gold. gold. And the training that's required these days is well, yeah. next level, isn't it? To, they they need maturity often, but uh, you can find maturity on the um, shoulders of students and provisional psychs who often also perform these kind of roles because they're in the process of training to be that clinician who will have to deal with that kind of quest, that kind of presentation down the track. Mm -hmm. But um, it's really important that they are very strongly supported and um, managing wait lists. Um, there are certain people that you and I know in this consult, consulting coaching space who just say don't have them. <laughs> and you can see why. You can yeah. see why. It's really tough. The black and um, white approach. Yeah, and just service the clients you have and worry about a wait list some other time. Mm. Um, the, the difference is I think it, it just isn't possible at the moment to be referring people out, running, a, as I call it, the Citizens Advice Bureau, which most people who are, you know, under 35 don't even know what you're talking about. Um, <laughs> but Citizens Advice Bureau is, of course, a place of, of referral. And, you know, in the past you would say, oh, look, so-and-so, we know they've got spots, you know, you can probably make contact with them. There is no one at the moment. I've never, I've never in 35 years of practice had somebody ring me saying I've got depression and anxiety, pretty straightforward. Um, I just I need some sessions around workplace issues, family stuff, whatever. And me saying to them, I'm very sorry, but I actually do not know anybody who could take you this in in, in the foreseeable future. Wow. 
Unbelievable. I, I, and I pride myself on having a, a raft of people who either work for me or I work with who I can say, oh, so-and-so would be perfect. Um, and they're in your region or they're in their area. This, this is just not on, on, the, on the cards at the moment. Mm-hmm. So uh, we end up suggesting things like head to health hubs yes. and places like that where, the, where there's triage, but also where they are certainly more aware of, um, you know, what's available and what's not available. Yeah. And Kay, um, I'm going to ask you about some lighter touch options that, as you just started alluding to there, where people can start to get a little bit of support while they are on the waiting list. We've got a bunch of other questions that I want to go into about that whole um, triaging and more around the training and support internally. But let's hold that over to a part two, if that's okay. So we can give people some food for thought on this topic, Mm. have some pause and reflection and then have a second session. Um, you know, of course, I'm, I'm a fan of the creating even your own little mini online course that can have some useful videos and yeah. resources for people. Um, tell me about sort of some interim things that clinics could be giving to people for that six weeks that they are waiting for an appointment. Well, one of the things I would say to you that is not that hard to do is to actually get your website um, person to develop a learning management system yeah. for you. Yeah, These you days... Yeah, they, or just use one of the platforms and, and see mm-hmm. if you can plug it into your website. Definitely. Um, and then just go on, on there and start talking about what, you know, thank you, welcome to our practice. Um, mm. we're, you're watching this because you've approached us for services and at the moment we may not be able to provide those services straight away. So we are going to go through a number of options um, that are available to you um, that have possibly been told you over the phone, but here they are in writing, in a visual uh, sort of uh, presentation. And then you can go into, you know, um, there's the happiness track course, there's mindspot.org.au, there's the way back support services, there's suicide prevention services, there's your GP, there's, you know, and so on. And you can have a, you know, potentially, a, you know, a slide set on each of these, uh, mm. that it has a slide on each of these services and that people can then watch a few times, you know, and yes. kind of, and then, and I guess just talking about, you know, mental health first aid, yeah. um, talking about looking around for groups that they could join online that would help them to and support them. There mm-hmm. are those. And I think, you know, thinking about things like telehealth services that are available, if your telehealth is full as well as you, and you're not maybe not even offering face-to-face, is have you got a relationship with a national telehealth uh, mental health provider that you would feel comfortable to send people to. Great. And what's and their, an, do they have a waiting list? And yeah. it's an interim measure we appreciate. It's not going to give the full depth of a one-to-one yeah. clinical experience, but at least there's something to go on with, isn't there, while we do have this <clears throat> exactly deficit of, of <laughs> availability. Kay, is there anything else... Um, Oh, you know, and keeping in touch with people on the wait list. Should we sort yeah. of wrap up with that one? Um, checking in, making sure they're okay. What's a what's a sensible time frame for doing that? Do you think? Um, I think if you're hoping to pro- pro- offer somebody a um, a session within a six week period, um, be in contact with them weekly. And obviously, if you triage them through automated processes. So often people are sending out, out a lot of automated materials that have to come back. You, you need to convey to them, unless we have all your materials, you will not go on the wait list. That's yeah. the first thing. Second thing is that somebody will call you, text you or email you, which is your preference. Yes. 
So we then have to decide, you know, what are we, because you're going to have to put aside some support, admin support time to do this stuff. So um, this is why if you're a solo provider, which we have 50% of our registered psychologists are in that environment, you need to think really carefully about having wait lists of any um, note, of any length, um, because you just, you, you could spend half your life on the phone to people. I, I've certainly spoken to psychologists and said, you need to stop taking phone calls. Yeah, okay. You need to automate what your response is to inquiries. You need to leave messages on, on various phones that you've used and say, I'm not really responding to phone calls. You need to email me mm-hmm. or check out my website, which has all the stuff on what you need to do if you want to go on a wait list. So just really making it so that your time is not taken up, that the clinician's time is not taken up with um, any more of the management than they need to. But once somebody is actively on a wait list, then there is a duty of care mm-hmm. to just keep in touch. Um, and people said to me, oh, but they're not active, you know, they're not, not actually our clients as yet. And I guess I say, well, you can explain that to the coroner when that person decides to do something to themselves while they're on your wait list and somebody discovers that's where they were waiting for a service and you hadn't talked to them for some weeks. Yeah, well said. So, you know, so I think I, we always, I, I'm, not, I'm not a great one for, you know, um, too much catastrophizing and people mm-hmm. saying things like, I never write anything in my case notes because then I won't have to, I won't get into trouble, really. Mm-hmm. Um, or I leave people on a wait list and, you know, don't contact them because then I don't know what their problems are. So then I'm not responsible. These are not ways to manage things. We are professionals. We need to be able to explain what we're doing in a clear and understandable way. And if the person is outside of our scope and outside of our policy, we need to explain to them why. Mm. Um, and we need to manage ourselves in relationship to um, that wait list by keeping in touch with people and asking for their feedback about whether they still wish to remain on the wait list because they may have found something else to see or some yes. other way of handling their difficulties. And here's hoping. Here's hoping. <laughs> Kay, thank you so much. I love talking to you because you're so super practical. Like you're, you're, you know, incredibly intelligent person who can bring it down to this is how a phone gets answered. Like I just love that you're, you have that ability to get into the minutiae of what is needed to help people. Um, how can we, so we're going to have a second conversation if you're okay to do that, because I do want to touch on our golden receptionists and what more can be done around them. Um, you know, how do we, brief therapy models you know we've got other things that we can talk about but if people are interested in supervision or business coaching with you which is your mainstay how do they reach you well there's a wait list no there isn't <laughs> you meanie <laughs> sorry <laughs> black joke sorry about that black humor um there's there is not a wait list um there people are very welcome to make contact with me k at kfranken.com check out my website um, I'm available to do business coaching and, and supervision. Often it's a combination for many people who are in small practices, solo practices. And it's a sort of a boutique arrangement from my point of view, Megan. And um, I'm there to help you achieve your business goals and obviously to offer um, the best experience you can to your clients um, and have a satisfying life um, in these difficult times in terms of your workload and, and um, the passions that you have for your practice. So, um, that's me. There's no upsell. There's no uh, locking contracts. It's just an hourly rate and we work out a business plan and we go from there. Beautiful. And everyone needs that support. We all need a Laurie Lawrence pool side at the moment cheering us on. We sure do. We sure do. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's a great analogy that, 
you know, everybody needs a, a cheerleader, but they also need somebody who is able to in, uh, interrogate what's going on and help them to fix some of these issues that they may be facing. Yeah, fantastic. Hey, thank you so much. Love, love the conversation. Looking forward to part two. I'll talk to you soon. Cheers. Bye now. (laughs) Thank you.